This is the Studio Alchemy Podcast, episode 105. There is no place like home. Our quote of the day was said by Marcel Proust. The real act of discovery is not in finding new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. Hello, everyone. The purpose of this podcast is to explore creative ways to transform our lives using the artistic process. Alchemy was the ancient study of changing materials from one thing into another, and we all do this every day. Every choice you make is transforming our world. On this podcast, we hunt for the wise balance between accepting what is and taking empowered action. My name is Addie Hirshton. I am an artist. I sign my paintings with the name Vita. I teach art classes and have written a few books, including The Alchemy of Painting and my new book, The Alchemy of Symbols. If you want to find out more about my projects, classes, or to sign up for my art newsletter, I invite you to go to my website, which is studioalchemy.art. And now for our topic of the day. So this episode is an excerpt from my book, The Alchemy of Symbols, How to Use the Power of Images to Transform Your Life. And today we are reading from chapter five, There is No Place Like Home. And to sum up before we, before I actually read it to you, oh, there's several things I want to say. So this chapter is about how the home is a symbol, and so we see elements of the home in dreams um, often, and they can really take on a heavy symbolic significance, but then also the way we live in our space uh, can reflect our inner core beliefs, um, and also it's about you know, where is your home, what is your ideal place, where do you feel the most comfortable, where is it that you call home and you want to be, and I've been thinking so much about this lately for several reasons. Um, you know, one that I, you know, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm most likely going to be moving back there. And, and I had like all these issues with the town <laughs> um, because of a number of different experiences that I had there that were negative. Um, you know, some of them, as you can imagine it being the American South, I saw some racist shit happen. I had a friend whose her car window was busted in, and I was there to help her clean it up, um, and other things as well. And I really, because of a lot of those experiences, came to view Raleigh, North Carolina as a evil, bad place. Um, because of my associations with it. And I've realized since then that, you know, really bad shit happens everywhere. Um, and in fact, where I am right now, I'm in downtown Indianapolis. Um, I mean, I've seen more horrible things here in the past few years than I ever saw in Raleigh. And I've looked up the stats, and where I am now is far more unsafe than than Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, like earlier today, someone just walked in my studio. The back door had been left open and and they refused to leave until I cussed them out. 
Um, I felt very lucky that Brad was here also at the time. Um, I've had a, a friend's mother was murdered. That was half a mile away from my house by an intruder in the middle of the night. I've seen dead bodies <laughs> from, uh, from overdoses. I've seen high-speed car chases. So, I mean, and, and the list goes on. And it, But it's not that there's any place on the planet where these bad things might happen, but how do you determine where you want to be and what is safe and where is home? I mean, this is just a real theme for me. And it just has me thinking about place, about home, about all the associations that we place on the place, <laughs> that we put on the place, right? So I will share the chapter with you now. Um, as always, I want to thank the Indiana Arts Commission for their generous grant that helped me to write this book through the on-ramp program. Um, and if you'd like a copy of the illustrated version of this, you want to go to my website, studioalchemy.art, for the link to purchase it. Okay, so here we go. We're at chapter five, There is no place like home. When I was a teenager, I became obsessed with France. It began when I started taking French language classes. I read French literature, I watched French movies, I ate French food. I read about the bold style of Impressionist art. I tucked French art posters all over the walls of my bedroom. I listened to language tapes over and over. France symbolized the ideal place for me. I thought that once I arrived there, my life would be perfect. I would be blissfully happy. And finally, the day came when I was to travel to France to be an exchange student. And when I arrived, I found many wonderful things about France. My host family owned a seafood restaurant called Fruit de la Mer, the fruit of the sea. They served me five-course meals every evening. I didn't even need butter on my bread because it was so good just by itself. There was trouble in paradise, however. Our group had numerous delays due to train problems, traffic, and strikes in the streets. It was very gray there. Perhaps because of all the French paintings I had looked at, I had imagined a colorful, almost tropical place. The sun did not shine his happy face often during the fall when I was there. I also still had all my old aches and pains. If I stubbed my toe in France, it hurt just as much as it had back home. Go figure. Toward the end of my stay, I took a trip down to Paris with a group. We hiked all around the city that day. I was feeling melancholy, sad that my journey was almost over, deep down disappointed that my French utopia wasn't all it was cracked up to be. I was looking at the ground and darting around the rain puddles when we came to an intersection. I looked up to see where I was going. Across the street, there was a second-story apartment window. Hanging from that window was a large banner. In English, the banner read, Bloom where you are planted. When I read the sign, I realized how much I had put my hopes and dreams into a fantasy that didn't match reality. 
I realized that if I wanted to bloom, to flourish, I needed to cultivate my own soil. I needed to open my eyes to what was great about my home. I needed to be re-enchanted with reality. For me, a blooming flower came to represent my ability to enjoy my life no matter where I am. This symbol grew to represent how I can embrace my surroundings to create not a perfect place, but an enjoyable place. My ideal sense of beauty can be incorporated into any home. I went back to the United States much happier after this epiphany. Quote by Sung San, the whole world is a single flower. The word utopia was invented by Sir Thomas More in 1516. He spliced together the Greek words for no, ooh, good, ooh, and place, topas, to get the word utopia, no place. He wrote a book about a fictional island in the Atlantic Ocean called Utopia. On this perfect island, there was no private property. Everything was owned commonly. Religious toleration was upheld. Women did the same farming work as men. Everyone wore the same clothes, and people only worked six hours a day. Sir Thomas More didn't believe that this ideal community was realistic. This is why he called it utopia, no place. There is no such thing as perfection. There is no utopia, no Shangri-La, no Brigadoon. <laughs> no perfect place that is just over the crest of the hill. No spot where all is good and bad things can never trespass. Religious toleration was a notion that Moore thought was especially unrealistic. He was a devout Catholic who ordered many Protestants to be burned at the stake when he was Lord Chancellor of England. After the political tide turned during the Reformation, Moore was beheaded. By writing Utopia, Moore shared his secret dreams of religious peace masked in political satire. Despite the fact that there is no perfect place, it is good to dream. It is good to imagine our symbolic ideal place. Our ideals say a lot about us, what we strive for, what we value. Our ideals prompt us to change. Our ideals can prompt us to cultivate our own soil, to bloom where we are planted. Regardless of how realistic Sir Thomas More thought his utopian dreams were, in the years after the book was written, many people looked to the concepts in it as a roadmap for society. The labor movement pushed to have a limited workday, just like in the book Utopia. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution instituted the separation of church and state, securing religious freedom in my country, just like in the book Utopia. The fantastic ideas found in utopian dreams can come to fruition. This dreaming is an important part of the creative process. Dreaming leads to innovation. If you go to Chartres Cathedral in France, on the stone floor you will find the shape of a labyrinth. Tracing the pattern with your steps, you can spiral into the circle. At the center, there is a six-petaled flower design meant to represent the Holy Land. 
you can then spiral out again, symbolically returning to Earth and everyday living. Many of the church labyrinths in Europe created during the Middle Ages were made to enable people who wanted to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but were not physically able to, to symbolically make the journey instead. The ritual of walking a labyrinth or maze is seen by many people to not only represent the pilgrimage to a faraway land, but also the pilgrimage to a person's inner spirit. After journeying through this confusing path, the seeker finds at the center, quote, the essential reality of his or her own nature, end quote, by Fontana. Similarly, my own journey to France led me to a place far from my home only to discover that what I was seeking was within me all along. Whether the journey through the labyrinth is physical or spiritual, all paths lead us back to the beginning. We end up where we started from, but just a little bit wiser. All journeys eventually lead us back home. In some myths, the center of the labyrinth or maze is a home. In the creation story of the Tono Dorum, the center of the earth is the home of the creator elder brother, Itoi, who brought people through a labyrinth to the earth's surface. The labyrinth surrounding his home served as protection from enemies. In one Greek myth, a maze was built to house a monster named the Minotaur. In this story, the maze served to protect the outside world from the creature and retain his victims inside. The symbols of labyrinths and mazes are structured like a home to hold at the center of it a powerful energy that can either create or destroy. Similar to labyrinths, houses can represent the physical body of a person. At the body's core are the elements of the soul, the center of the being, the energy that pushes us toward creation or destruction. One night, Carl Jung had a dream that he was in his home. As he went downstairs, at each level, he found the furniture and objects in the rooms were from older and older time periods. When he reached the cellar, he found that it was an ancient Roman stone structure. Descending further still, he entered a cave that was a prehistoric tomb with two skulls and bits of pottery. Young felt that the house in his dream represented his body and mind. The influence of past time periods on his philosophy was symbolized in the form of the shape of the structure and its decorations. The deepest cave level was the ancient part of himself that was subconsciously connected to the people of all time. Jung believed that if he could come to understand the symbols that unify humanity, he could also come to better understand himself. He believed that if everyone strove to understand themselves better, the divisions that separate people would be healed. Quote by Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Houses are common symbols in dreams and are often interpreted to represent the body of the dreamer. Psychologists view a house as 
symbolic of a person's inner being. The different parts of a home can reflect a person's feelings. The kitchen may represent nourishing care because food replenishes the body. The hearth may represent the flames that ignite energy. The attic or cellar may represent the subconscious mind that influences a person's decisions without their knowledge. The home is a powerful symbol that taps into our basic human needs for shelter and belonging. The homes in our dreams and the homes that we live in both reflect our needs and identity. The home is a symbol that can be examined to find the patterns of our inner structure. The shape of the outer world reflects the inner world of spirit. How we design our dwellings and objects we select to decorate them mirrors our mental state of mind. If we worry that we will not have enough to sustain us in the future, we might hoard things in our home. If we feel strained from the stress of work, we might select blue paint for our bedroom to help us feel calm. Where we nest, we bring whatever brings us comfort. Within our imagined ideal home, or our actual dwelling, are symbols rich with longing. John O'Donohue wrote that when you come home, quote, you are back where you belong. The garden, the front door, the walls, the hearth, the bedroom, all hold your body, giving it a place to rest. These elements support you and impact your emotional health. Just as the elements of a home can symbolically and physically support us, they can also be outward manifestations of inner problems. Our fears can be reflected in our choice of surroundings. Our beliefs about what is possible can be shown in tangible form. I had one friend who broke up with his wife. He shared with me that in their living room, they had two sofa chairs that were separated by a large coffee table. These chairs are like my marriage, he said, separate and distant. He told me that he planned on buying a new love seat where he and his future partner could snuggle close together. When we restructure the objects in our environment, we restructure our relationships, intentionally choosing to design space to support the lifestyle that we want strengthens our ability to manifest it. Families that eat together, gathering around a table to share time, space, and food, stay together. And yes, couples that have set up their space to be physically close to each other will be emotionally closer. I'm just going to interject something. Uh, I just want to say, um, this is not part of the reading, that uh, maybe what you actually want is to not be physically closer and you want your own space. And that's, of course, okay, too. Noticing what is there in the space already perhaps reflects what you actually want and the way you've structured it. So the question to ask yourself is, if you want close relationships, then maybe getting the love seat is the thing to do. If not, own that. Um, and I just, I interject that because I think that um, so many people in our society, they assume that everyone wants a standard marriage, living uh, together, relationship and that's not actually what everyone wants and so I just want to I felt the urge to interject that because whatever it is you want you can create it you just have to get really clear about it and then make it happen all right back to the reading this is a quote by 
Bertolt Brecht, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. Unfortunately, sometimes people cannot see when the objects they are choosing to bring into their space are limiting their options. I had one friend who claimed that he desperately wanted to live with a partner, but he did not make his home welcoming. There was no room in the closets for a new partner's things. The countertops in the kitchen were completely filled to the edges. You couldn't have chopped vegetables to cook dinner in this space. There was no room for a new partner. The objects around us can become symbolic projections of what we really want on a subconscious level. I suspect that this friend didn't ultimately want to live in partner because without being fully aware of it, he created an unwelcoming space. In order to create what you want, you need to make space for it with intention. Over the past few years, clearing the clutter in a home that might symbolically represent things that are holding you back from creating your ideal life has been all the rage. Much of this trend has been inspired by the work of Marie Kondo. In her books and TV shows, Kondo encourages people to let go of objects that are no longer serving them, to leave room only for things that symbolically uplift them, quote, sparking joy. Her desire to show respect to all objects, thanking them for their service once their use is completed, is influenced by the beliefs of Shintoism. Shinto is an ancient Japanese religion that viewed all objects as having a spirit of their own. Shinto is one of the many religions that are classified as animistic. Animism is the religious belief that spirits exist in every item, even inanimate objects. While Shinto is not practiced widely in Japan today, it continues to influence Japanese culture. I believe that one of the major reasons the teachings of Marie Kondo currently resonate with so many Americans is because we are recognizing the powerful influence that objects can symbolically have in our lives. When I was renovating my studio, I lifted a vinyl rug from the bedroom floor, and when I did, I found treasure. The space must have been a child's room. Underneath the rug were old flashcards, postcards, and stamps. It was a glimpse into the life of a child living there in the 1950s. I knew that during that time period, the family who lived there was African-American. Sadly, all of the images I found were of white children. I believe that this reflects the way whites dominated the press during that time. And imagine how the absence of images of your own race in the materials you owned would silently affect your psyche. Such is the power of symbols to uplift or oppress. Letting go of the symbols that oppress can release us. If I hold on to a vase that was owned by my grumpy great aunt who complained even if it was 70 degrees and sunny every time I look at it, I will be reminded of the negative feelings she gave me. Those feelings could impact my mood. Letting go of objects with bad associations can be liberating. It can also be liberating to let go of objects with good associations in some circumstances. I recently sold an antique bed. It was my bed when I was a teenager, and I had many fond memories from my bedroom at that time. In my current house, however, the bed was an extra. It wouldn't fit in the space, 
I jammed it into the garage where it was taking up too much room, getting scraped and damaged. It was hard for me to give up the bed. I stalled and hesitated to sell it. Finally, however, I realized that we desperately needed more storage space and room to work in the garage. I put out an ad for the bed and was happy when it sold to a nice family. I met the little boy who adopted the bed. I told him of my happy memories, sleeping until noon in the bed, and that I was glad it would be his when he becomes a teenager. As I drove away from his house, I felt lighter, content that the bed would have a fresh new life and no longer be a burden to me. I can imagine that if the bed had a spirit, that spirit would want a human to sleep in it. Instruments were made to be played. Tools were made to create things. Objects were made to be useful. What is lost wants to be found. Let go of the objects that you don't want so that they can be made useful again in someone else's home. Grasping too tightly onto an object when it no longer is being used can only bring suffering. It is like wanting for the world to stop moving. Objects move in and out of our lives like the tide. Be selective about what objects you give space to. Sentimental items can have symbolic weight to them. and They bring comfort and joy. Through them, we can honor a loved one. I believe that it is important to not confuse their spirit with the spirit of the object. Balance comes from noticing the pull that draws us toward objects that we long for and letting go when the use of the item has passed. The Victorian fabric designer, William Morris said, quote, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. By being selective about the objects we have in our homes, the structure of the space can bring us closer to our ideals. When we design our homes, we can increase our feelings of abundance by choosing to bring in only positive images that reflect our values. The Chinese practice of feng shui and the Indian practice of vastu use traditional symbolic systems to place items in the home to increase abundance. Use one of these systems for inspiration or simply consider livening up any room in your house that symbolically represents what you would like to manifest. If you want to increase your health, redecorate and clean your kitchen. Fill the fridge with healthy food. If you would like to increase your romantic life, focus on the seating areas and bedrooms. Make it a sensual space. Bring in images that evoke loving feelings for you, warm reds, people embracing, flower petals, and candles. In his memoir on writing, author Stephen King describes how the placement of his desk became an important symbol for him. After working in cramped closets and tight spaces on a flimsy desk, he dreamed of owning a large, elegant desk to work on. When he gained success as a writer, he bought a house with a skylighted study. In it, he placed a substantial desk in the middle of the room. He developed a drug problem and for six years sat at the desk, quote, like a ship's captain in charge of a voyage to nowhere. He sobered up, got rid of the monstrosity of a desk, and redecorated the room. 
He brought in a living room set, intentionally making space for his family to join him in his study. He got a smaller desk and tucked it under the eaves of an alcove in the room. He suggests that writers place their desks to the side and constantly, quote, remind yourself why it isn't in the middle of the room. For King, the desk that dominated the room came to symbolically represent the lonely side of his career. After he decided that he no longer wanted for his writing to overshadow his family relationships, he removed the old desk from his space. John O'Donohue wrote that a home is the cradle of one's future. If you want to articulate your desires, manifest your ideals, or bloom where you are planted, assess the objects that you have brought into your space and let go of what you don't want. When I let go of the land of France as an ideal, I opened to the awareness that what I was after wasn't the place itself. It was the feeling of contentment. I can feel that feeling anywhere if I can appreciate the beauty around me and be empowered to create my ideals using the materials in front of me. Of course, if you decide that a different town will best suit your needs, then by all means move. But seriously unhealthy places are rare. Most often, it is not outside forces that stop us from happiness. It is our own outlook. To bloom where you are planted means that you embrace a positive attitude and make your home wherever your feet land. It can sometimes be difficult to see the difference between a healthy decision to move to a different place and running away. It is natural for people to move. They go on pilgrimages. They settle their roots down in new places. The question to ask yourself is if you are escaping because you aren't recognizing the beauty in front of you. And if so, there is no place on the planet that will satisfy you, no place, utopia. One of my yoga teachers ended each class with the saying, may you be like the lotus at home in the muddy water. And as we discussed before, the lotus is a symbol of enlightenment and spiritual awakening. The lotus blooms where it is planted, in the mud. And when my teacher repeated this blessing, she was inviting us to flourish wherever we are planted, no matter what the muddy circumstances are. May you feel empowered to design your home, no matter where it is, to fit your ideals. The main message of this chapter Symbolically ideal places show us our values. We can cultivate those ideals anywhere we choose to be. When we build and design our homes, we can increase our feelings of abundance by choosing to bring only positive images into the space that embody what we want. Questions to ask yourself. If home is where the heart is, where is your home? How does your current home reflect your inner emotions? End of chapter. It's so interesting. Like, So I worked on this book for a couple of years, obviously, and I was constantly changing it and revising it, adding new things, taking away things. And even now, I mean, it's done. You know, I've said it's done, it's printed, it's out of the world. Uh, and yet I want to refine it and add more things. And, you know, like I interjected um, the bit about relationships in the middle there. Um, 
And one current thought that I feel I would want to add to it is that, you know, I talked a lot about getting rid of objects that are negative, that you have negative associations with. But I do think that sometimes, and I, I'm thinking specifically of my old yearbooks, <laughs> which I got rid of at one point, just because some associations are bad, you don't, you don't want to just throw it all out. There's that saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't want to like, like get rid of everything, delete it all, wash it all away because of one bad thing. That to you want to see the whole of it. And I do think that recognizing the painful history um, can be healthy and that it's, it's good oftentimes to really examine what disturbed us and why it did. And at the root of that is usually something really good. Like, there are certain memories that in the past I just didn't want to talk about, didn't want to address, didn't want to deal with my grief over my friend Jackson dying being one of them. And then my response was at that time to just not talk about it, to literally throw out the objects that I had, that had association with him and all of, and other things as well. But like, I wish I had those yearbooks back right now. Um, and it's okay, they're gone. There's a, there's a really important lesson to be learned in it, and that is that to see a thing, you really got to look at the whole of it. Um, we can't wash away all of the bad things. They will still be there within our memory, within our psyche. And then they're going to fester and they're going to bother us until we can really address them and talk about them and, and face them and celebrate those ideals that are at the root of it. You know, something bad happens and you think, oh, this wasn't my ideal. Okay, well, then let's strive toward the ideal and, and learn from the experience itself. All right. Sorry, processing so many thoughts and feelings here. And um, thank you for being a platform in which I can express these things and clarify what it is I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to live my life. Yes, through my artwork, but also in my day-to-day -day choices. Like, where am I going to live? So, alrighty. This concludes the Studio Alchemy podcast. May these thoughts and stories comfort and heal your spirit. May you be filled with inspiration. May you be like the lotus flower and build your home in the muddy water. May you find your voice.